by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. How do we ensure that BIPOC-led work is resourced? And someone may said to me, by resourcing it. How do we make sure it's resourced? By resourcing it, right? Like moving from the head to the heart, like, it, or like from the heart to the hands. Like it's about action, like just do it. It is not an intellectual exercise or it doesn't have to be an intellectual exercise. Well, first I want to thank you I'm, I'm, I'm like really excited for this conversation for so many reasons, you know, for me as, a, as an activist um, in the climate space and in, in the, and in the racial justice space, um, it's been one in which is the one piece of this hasn't been so much the, the streets um, as it has been the suites. Um, so <laughs> then, you know, I think, and I think many of us, um, have been wondering about just how, uh, this world of how do we fund our movement? Because we have a joke, we would say no cash, no cause. And so, um, but before we get into that, I actually, I'm so honored because I have three of you with me to break this down for those who are. I know who are just listening to this mm -hmm. amazing conversation. So I have with me Kate Kruger, uh, Laura Garcia, and Solomi Lema. Correct? Is that was that was that all right? Did I get that run the first go? You bet. Oh man, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So uh, let's start with you, Kate. Uh, who who is Kate uh, Kruger? Uh, who's Kate Kruger? Uh, I am. Uh, feminist, activist, grant maker. I uh, run the Urgent Action Fund for Women's Human Rights. It's a feminist fund. Uh, so it's run by feminists for feminists. We provide emergency support to women and trans people who are on the front lines of human rights struggles around the world. Um, and we do that primarily through funding through our rapid response grants. Um, I am also someone who is deeply... Uh, concerned about climate change and committed to climate justice, which is something that I came to through feminism, actually, because I saw that women and trans people were doing some of the most effective work around issues like environmental protection, land rights, food sovereignty, and also because I saw that all of the things that I care about as a feminist activist and that the feminist activists that I'm in community about, I care about as well, are those issues are never gonna, we're never gonna realize the rights that we care about so deeply if we don't have a planet. And uh, it feels like we've gotten to a point where we're gonna lose our precious planet. So mm -hmm. I've come to climate justice work a little bit late, but taking the lead from the activists that I work with. Okay, thank you for that. That actually was, I appreciate, I appreciate that so much because I think many people understand, particularly in my community, that not just all lives matter, but definitely um, Black trans lives matter as well. And they are sometimes 
not sometimes, they are many times um, um, attacked and, and brutalized. And so I appreciate that work. Okay, before I get to uh, Laura and Suleiman, let, let me just say this, Kay. You didn't kind of give your breakdown. So, okay, so you, you, where, where are you from? I mean, you kind of gave the nice uh, academic. I'm, I, I'm, and I, we're going to get on to the work, but I want to, I, I folks listening probably want to say, well, who is Kay Kruger now? So, where, where, where are you from? And like, where'd you go to school? Uh, yeah, I, yes, I'm, I'm a bit in my head, so I'll try and drop down a little bit. Um, into my heart, into other places. I am Canadian. I'm from Ottawa uh, and grew up there. Uh, I went to school all over the place. I, I went to school in Canada, in England, in the United States. I moved to the U.S. actually to go to school right before 9-11. Mm. Uh, in fact, I, I graduated from a program, a master's program, I think a week before 9-11 and, uh, and um, entered the American experience at that very uh, tricky moment. And I've been here for now, whatever that is now. Uh, now no, never my strong point. Uh, many, many years, decades, in fact, and um, mostly in New York and in California. Um, yeah, that's why. Oh, thank you for that. that yeah, that's nice. Better? <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 that's fantastic. No, I was going to say that. So I have a son who plays ice hockey. Okay. Yeah, so when you mentioned uh, Ottawa and Canada. Yeah. yeah. Is he a Senators fan? Tell me he's a Senators fan. I live in in the D.C. area, so he's a capital fan. Oh, all right. I'll give that to I'm from Louisiana, so I have no clue about any of this stuff. (laughs) No ice. (laughs) <laughs> I'm from Louisiana. All we have is, is alligators and swamps, and that's that's about it. <laughs> no hockey sticks. Fair enough. Laura, uh, Laura Garcia. Who is Laura Garcia? So I will start with a personal, so that I'm not um, uh, cold <laughs> like <Kate>. uh, <laughs> I um, <clears throat> so I'm from Mexico. I was born and raised in Mexico City. So for all of those who don't know that city, it's a huge, massive city that I love and hate at the same time, but it's my home. And uh, I was born and raised there. I uh, I was very much always um, interested in issues around justice. I come from a family of lawyers, and perhaps it's because of that. But I focused much more on like social justice issues and the enormous inequality problems of my country. So I. So started mixing that with my academic studies and I, I was working at some point for the government and then um, just realized that that's uh, most of my words and my papers and everything that I did ended up just in the garbage there and I wanted to be more hands-on in the issues that I cared about. Um, so I joined uh, civil society And I was very lucky to have lots of feminist mentors. So uh, very much like Kate, who's an old friend of mine, I um, joined the feminist uh, movement and the philanthropic movement for uh, financing feminist uh, uh, movements and organizations in Mexico. And I started learning more and more about feminism. And I fell in love with, uh, with that because it brought me the idea that I also... Um, I think that I was also personally and individually transformed as much as I saw the transformation out there. So feminism and working together and very close to 
um, people who were fighting for justice in Mexico to stop uh, feminicides and to um, seek gender equality in many ways transformed me and transformed my heart. And through that work, I came to um, also understand what Kate referred to, which is what's the point of seeking gender equality issues in a world that's at risk and in a planet that's at risk. So I became um, more and more interested in environmental issues. And last year, I, as I was, uh, I had been leading a feminist fund in Mexico uh, to, to finance Mexican, um, um, Mexican feminist organizations. And I was ready to let my colleagues uh, take the lead. And I thought that I was ready for adventure. I didn't know what that would look like. And last year, I uh, came across this um, opportunity to participate and to start working in what I am uh, working right now, which is um, global, um, a global fund uh, that provides uh, grassroots environmental organizations with financing and accompaniment. And the fund is called Global Green Grants Fund. It's based in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado, but it finances uh, more than a thousand organizations worldwide uh, that fight, uh, that are in the front lines of the environmental justice movement in, and the grassroots movements uh, in more than 168 countries. So I said goodbye to my family, my friends, my culture, my country, and I arrived just before lockdown began this year in uh, <laughs> the pandemic. So in many ways, I feel like I'm still settling down, but I'm just, um, I just arrived here this year and, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the new CEO of Global Green Brands Fund and I'm right now based in Colorado and uh, working from home like most of, of us who <laughs> work from home. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. And, and like, Kate, thank you both. That's not, I mean, we're going to get more into the, the work, but I, I love the fact um, you're, you're funding different aspects of our movement. And we're going to get into why and how come. <laughs> I have a unique Mexico City story as well. Um, you know, my dad was in the Olympics. My parents are both from mm -hmm. Trinidad and Tobago. And so he, uh, he was in the Olympics in 1968 and uh, in Mexico City. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, That's uh, a huge year for Mexico City. It's the student revolt year. Yes. Lots of things happened that year. I'm, uh, that's nice. No, no, and that's why I ended up, I think where I ended up here, <laughs> because he, he, he was, as an athlete, he saw the students who were there protesting in Mexico City, he also saw uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos who put their fist up, um, and he like, and he was like, "Wow, look at those crazy Americans!" <laughs> he was like, but he was so moved by that. So this it, it goes to show you that people are watching, um, and so symbolism and what we do and who is mm -hmm. doing what, which is I think, which is so for me, so excited to have to talk to all three of you, powerful women who are in. Uh, this world of funding and the world of, of making sure that people have the resources to do this work. So, no, thank you. Um, so, my sister Solomi uh, Lome, uh, who is uh, Solomi? 
who am I? First of all, thank you so much for having us on your show today. Um, I am an African feminist internationalist. I was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and I came to the United States when I was 11. And this was in 1990. And I came, you know, super proud of where I came from, from the country, the continent, my people. And as soon as I arrived here, I learned and realized that the story that Americans have of Ethiopia and Africa was very different from my own, right? The questions I got from kids was, oh, were you starving? Uh, were you hungry? My parents helped you because of the 1985 famine. And I was startled and shocked by that. And I think that seeded at a young age a sense of responsibility to undoing that narrative that was harmful uh, while also really trying to contribute meaningful, meaningfully to the kind of transformations I hoped for my country and the continent. And that took me on kind of a meandering journey. Um, initially, of course, as a good immigrant, I was told if I studied international relations, then I was going to go work for the United Nations because where else would you work if you want to do international work? <laughs> and so I tried that and I worked for big international organizations and I learned, you know, through those experiences that that change that is not fully owned by the people and led by the people is not transformative change. It's not the type of change that lasts. And that's what led me to the space that I'm in today, particularly working in philanthropy that supports grassroots groups and movements, uh, particularly because I saw through those experiences that we weren't funding the people. We weren't funding their ideas. We were imposing our own. And, and that's a new form of colonialism. And that is what perpetuates the white savior industrial complex. And I don't want to be a part of that. So change course, entered this field. Today, I am the executive director at Thousand Currents, which is a public foundation, much like Global Green Grants and Urgent Action Fund that is in relationship with social movements and grassroots groups around the world that are working on issues like food sovereignty, climate justice, and alternative economies. Essentially groups that are really reimagining just and equitable societies that are in right relationship with our planet. And, and our job is to be in relationship of trust, of accountability, and learning. Because just as we do the work of transforming the world, we must also be willing to transform ourselves. Mm, beautiful. Well, thank you all for that. And as Kate said, thank you all for allowing um, to go to your heart. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously this is all I talk about all the time is climate and climate justice and science and data. So I've, for my own uh, sanity, I realize going to your heart sometimes is, is mm -hmm. very important. But I think it's time for us to get to some of the nitty gritty because we have some real things. As my hat says, nine years. And for those, it means that is the IPCC report. That's we had 12 years, but that was three years ago. So <laughs> counting is counting down. And so we have some serious moments. So let's get right to it. So I want to start off with you, Kate, on this one. Sure. What is philanthropy to you? And how does it intersect with climate and environmental justice? Sure. Uh, can I ask you first, do you change hats every year? I do. I, do. I got them all. I have all the, thank you. I got them all a lot. I got a whole list of them. So I have 12, 11, 10, and 9. I have to get a new 11 because the we, we were filming a documentary on Silver Rise in Norfolk. And I put my hat down. And so someone in Norfolk has an 11-year hat. 
they don't even know what it means. <laughs> in fact, but, but they, so they're stuck going to live in a year. I wish, <laughs> I wish we was stuck going to live in years in our movement. <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. Um, well, I hope we achieve all the success that we need to by the time you get down to zero. So let's, oh, let's get yeah. cracking, right? You have no choice. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, one of the tools for success, uh, I think, is philanthropy. That's why I chose to work in the sector of philanthropy. Um, broadly speaking, funding from governments, foundations, and individuals is... Um, one of the key uh, redistributive tools that we have, right? Uh, in the unequal and capitalist society in which we live, um, we are, our lives are, the course of our lives is in many ways dictated by the flow of resources. So if we can influence the flow of resources into the hands of those who are most able to make change in our world, then we're playing a key part in redistribution and in um, moving towards more justice, even within this capitalist existence that we have. Um, so that's why I work in philanthropy, because it's a tool, and it's a tool that I can engage in. Um, my belief, as Solome was saying earlier, my belief is that um, the best philanthropy is, um, is led by those who are most impacted by the challenges that philanthropy is trying to address, right? Whether it's the rise of authoritarianism, white supremacy, patriarchy, climate change, all of those big crises uh, that we are grappling with right now, um, the solutions themselves need to be defined by those most impacted. Mm. That doesn't mean that uh, within effective philanthropy, that we don't, we all have a responsibility, right, to correct past injustices, but the leadership for the solutions has to come from the people who are on the front lines. Um, so what that means for us within the CLIMA Consortium is that that's folks at the grassroots, right? That's black and brown communities who are fighting environmental racism in this country and, and elsewhere. Real quick, you mentioned yeah. Explain Klima, because I think you just brought in a new, a new thing, and we'll be talking about quite a bit here. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll actually let Solome do that, I think, right? Solome, yeah. do you want to explain Klima? Sure. Should I step in now? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to come right back to Kate, but please. please <laughs> exactly. Please. <laughs> You're not going to forget. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. Kate, right, we, I got Kate right here. Um, so the Klima Fund is a collaborative fund comprised of Thousand Currents, Grassroots International, Chungwa wasn't able to be here with us today, Green Grants Fund, and, and Urgent Action Fund. And the origin story is really uh, one of the former directors of Thousand Currents, whose name is Vinny, and the former director of Global Green Grants Fund, Terry, were at a meeting uh, with big foundations talking about climate philanthropy. And at that meeting, the foundations were saying they didn't know how to reach grassroots groups. Um, they don't know how to fund them. And Vinny and Terry kind of looked at each other across the room and were like, well, that's what we're here for. And that's what we've been here for. So clearly, we need to do something different about how we position ourselves to make sure climate funding reaches the grassroots. Um, so they started talking and they had a conversation with Kate, who's here, as well as Chunga, Chungwa. 
to really talk about what can we do as public foundations and public foundations are institutions that raise money to give money. And in, in our cases, explicitly to grassroots groups and social movements to increase the scale of resources reaching them, as well as to also weave new narratives about who climate change agents are. Because at that point, we weren't really centering frontline communities and frontline leaders. So they started having that conversation. I, I believe you all met in San Francisco at that point to really kind of water the seed of an idea. And then in Colorado, where the vision and mission and ways of working together became clearer. Today, we, all of us have come together and we've created an infrastructure where we fund grassroots groups and social movements working on climate justice, led by indigenous peoples, by women, by farmers, fisher folk, and so on. Together, we have, I believe, over 120 years of experience in working with grassroots groups. We are in 168 countries around the world. So talk about reach. And we send thousands of grants a year. And really, I think what's important to know about Klima is that we are all deeply committed through practice, experience, and politic to funding the front line. And we all deeply understand the critical urgency of the climate crisis, its impact on frontline communities, and the responsibility us, we as funders, hold in ensuring resources are redistributed to them, as well as in challenging prevailing climate narratives that really leave them out, right? So, and while we're aligned in our vision and approaches, we also have distinctive strategies that we apply from the rapid response grants that Urgent Action Fund sends to the seed grants from Global Union Grants through to the long-term accompaniment model that, that Grassroots International and, and Thousand Currents practice. So I think by coming together, we've created a kind of a truly co complementary and holistic infrastructure to support those who are most impacted by the climate crisis and yet hold the most transformational solutions for getting us out of it. No, oh, thank you for that. Oh, that's powerful. Congratulations. I love it. I love it. Okay, Kate, so how does all this intersect? <laughs> um, I, was, I was just thinking about some of the grants that we've given uh, recently that uh, that kind of lift up or illustrate some of that intersectional work. So um, I was just talking about the black and brown communities that are um, combating environmental racism and you're from Louisiana. So um, recently we supported a group of women in Louisiana called the Louisiana Bucket Brigade that are fighting um, uh, the uh, uh, installation of a plastics factory um, in Cancer Alley that would spew more toxic gases um, over the communities in which they live, which are predominantly black and brown. So there's no accident about why this factory that's spewing toxic air would be, would be put there um, and have been successful in, um, in challenging uh, the factory and uh, stopping it from uh, starting production. So that's one place where women right at the front lines, black and brown people coming together and really pushing back and stopping something that's going to harm them, their bodies, their planet, their life. So that's just one example. We also support um, 
For example, the indigenous women of Standing Rock who were so courageous and working under such difficult uh, conditions to stop the pipeline. Um, coastal communities uh, in the US, but also people in small island nations who are most impacted by uh, the rising sea levels. All of these people have creative and powerful solutions that they're offering. And um, it's really a travesty that, that they are not always at the table where funding decisions are being made and where policy solutions are being designed. And so as Solome was saying, like that's our role. Our role is to lift up their solutions, amplify their voices and get money into their hands so that they can actually do this visionary work and save their own lives and also our lives. Man, well, I'm excited because for so many reasons, and I'm going to state those right now. One, I believe that we have a progressive, segregated, siloed climate movement that is predominantly male and white and little Birkenstock. And, and those movements are based on different coasts of this country. And the way that we actually win on climate is if we get uh, people of color, uh, we get women, and we get young people, and we get that combination, then nothing can stop us. I believe that. And I think that the reality is, is that in the 20th century, our parents fought for equality. But in the 21st century, we're fighting for existence. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, that it's critical. It is not a game for the grassroots to be leading. But we have an environmental movement that is pretty much locked into a certain culture, so to speak. And so we have to change that. So I just, I'm excited to hear this because the, the thing that stops a lot of um, particularly uh, grassroots from being woman-led and indigenous-led and people of color-led is this one thing of resources. And it creates a very uneven dynamic in the actual, in the streets, so to speak. It really creates that. And so, but I believe in the power of uh, uh, grassroots climate solutions. So but let's get to that. Let's break that down, actually, for those who want to understand that. So, Laura, what is the power of grassroots climate solutions? And what are the roles of women, youth, indigenous people, and disabled people in this movement? Well, amen, Rev. I think that you said it all, <laughs> but um, I'm going to I'm going to try to add more more things to what you said. Um, I think that the first of all, the the power of grassroots climate solutions is that in the very first instance, what we start seeing is that a very global and sometimes macro level problem that is difficult for us to grasp in our everyday lives is very much dissected and uh, seen in concrete terms by and experienced by grassroots movements and, the, and communities. And they are already um, coming up with solutions for better adaptation in climate change. And so the very first thing that I would say is that the, the power of grassroots movements is always to bring 
to a very um, lived experience and direct level of affectation, a very global problem that sometimes seems very um, fluid and too ambiguous to understand. And because of that ambiguity, we then tend to think, well, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do with such large systems of oppression or environmental degradation. And for grassroots movements, when you reach and see what communities are doing to tackle climate change, you then start understanding the power that we have as humanity if we collectively start thinking about those solutions at a local level. Because then local, in addition to other local solutions, then can bring the systems down. And that, that to me is very has been personally a very powerful uh, lesson learned in my life uh, through activism, through grassroots activists that have um, taught me that all of these human systems of oppression are man-made. And because we created them, therefore we also have the power and the ability to deconstruct them and to create the systems that we want. And that includes all of what we are seeing right now with climate justice movements. Now, for the, for the, the people um, and populations that have been marginalized, I think that we are losing uh, an amazing and essential brain power for climate justice to actually be achieved. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, in, in my view, it's not just a matter of superficially thinking about the importance of including the excluded people, because that obviously is important, but it's not just about inclusion of them uh, for justice reasons and for reasons that they also deserve to be in the table and have a say. It's because we, are, we would be losing an incredible amount of brain power in the agendas of the climate justice movement. For example, uh, in Latin America, the region where I come from, the feminist movement in the last um, uh, previous years has been incredibly strong in advocating for more democratization and for, the, uh, for tackling or, or fighting against the militarization of society. Without this force, this driving force of more and more young feminists um, going out and marching in the streets and teaching everyone actually that they have the power to even overturn governments like has, how it has been happening in Chile and other Latin American countries. If we don't include that power in the climate justice movement, we are losing a very important force for change. And so therefore, that's what I think comes with, uh, with what sometimes it has become a buzzword and difficult to identify when we say intersectionality. And people, I think, superficially or generally think intersectionality only in terms of let's do justice in order to have marginalized people or people of color be part of this. But that's a very superficial way of thinking because I think that what intersectionality actually brings 
to the climate justice movement is enormous strength. It brings not only more people in the movement, but most importantly, or perhaps more importantly, it brings better agendas. It brings agendas where you start thinking about the systems of oppression that reinforce environmental degradation. And by thinking about that and by, by um, intersecting those agendas, then you start bringing much better solutions because you start looking at what's at the root of environmental degradation and without tackling the colonialist oppression, for example, in the global south and how colonialist practices are continuing to reinforce environmental degradation as well as racial injustice and other types of injustices and patriarchy, you will not be able to solve it because climate, the problem of climate is not alone. It is reinforced by many other systems and the people who are leading the fights to tackle those systems need to be part of the climate solutions. And this is why CLIMA as members, these four organizations that we represent here, um, we are getting together because less than 1% of funding goes for climate grassroots solutions. This is unthinkable. We cannot continue to think in the years that you have in your cap, Rev, uh, that we're going to be doing any solution if we don't do something about the way that philanthropy is so unequally distributed. The movements that are making the biggest change out of them all are the grassroots movements but they are very ironically invisible to a lot of philanthropists and also to other governments and to the general public, I may say, if I may say, because these are groups that are seen too localized, you know, they're too small. And if you don't think in terms of a cascade of water or a waterfall uh, beginning with one drop of water, we're losing the battle. We need to start with that and we need to start funding those movements better and especially those movements that have been most underfunded, which are the grassroots movements and on top of that, the people who have been racialized, the people who have been discriminated, like women, people of color, people with disabilities, all of them have a huge brain power to contribute and ideas on how to understand discrimination better and therefore how to tackle climate justice better. And Rev, if I can just quickly add oh. one thing to that. Thank you for that, Laura. That was great. You know, one of our partners um, from South Africa, Mazibuko, uh, says, said something that I often return to, which is as movements, they have often have to employ strategies that are against the state, within the state, and beyond the state, right? So grassroots groups and movements that are building power from the grassroots level are able to, to resist, right? To stop extractive industries, to protest, to engage in the fight. But they're also able to reform, right? To sit at the policy level, um, to build political will, right? To organize so that policies are in alignment with what we need them to be. And lastly, beyond the state, they are able to reimagine new just futures that we may not be able to imagine right now. And they're building them right now. These aren't far-fetched ideas. They're practicing them right now. These are lived realities, right? So, so grassroots groups, led by those who are directly impacted, right? People of color, as you said, women, young people, and so on, are really able to 
build the just and equitable worlds that we need because they resist, they reform, and they transform, which are the strategies that we need to win on climate. Uh, we know that there has been no significant social transformation in history that hasn't been led by social movements that in, that haven't engaged frontline communities from civil rights to, to the anti-apartheid movement. We needed people. We needed to build people power. And given that climate is borderless and global, it really gives us an opportunity to build a new level of people power that brings about change, not just in relation to planetary boundaries, not just about emissions, but really about reorganizing the way we as society structure our economic and social systems to be and to serve everyone and not just a few. Mm. Thank you, Solomay. That was very powerful. Um, I, I want to I want to get to the, the partnership aspect of this, but I want to kind of jump to something because Kate had thing earlier that was very important when she was talking about literally, in essence, getting these resources to um, women and frontline communities and people of color. And you know, for me as a person of color, I'm always just kind of like wondering. How, I don't think I'm invisible, but I don't, I'm always wondering how, you know, the foundation and the, uh, and the funding world misses folks like this. And so, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm excited about CLEAM. I'm so excited I had this conversation. But I really want to go a little deeper because, you know, I, um, a few years ago, I received a human rights award and my co-recipient, um, was killed was Berta Caceres. Me and Berta Caceres were receiving an award, um, one for international, one domestic. But she was killed and she couldn't come. I mean, and that was and that really touched me in a way. I was thinking that even my own privileges as 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 an American, I think, was like, wow, you know, my counterparts in the in this movement in South Africa and Brazil um, and Honduras. And in Mexico, around the globe, um, are are literally being killed. And many of us over here in North America, even though we are fighting the good fights, um, and like me, who I spent a lot of time in jail fighting for the climate crisis, it's uh, it's it's still pretty pretty tough. Um, and one of the things I also see, um, and you mentioned the 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 groups in Louisiana. Um, and in uh, Standing Rock, um, and I was—I know both of those entities very, very well. And you're right; they are amazing. I spent so much time in Standing Rock, um, and it—the one thing about that, though—and this is this was real talk—I I would see how people would use these en entities. Right? They would—they would be funding themselves, and then they wouldn't give the resources to. Um, and I would also see how many groups, people are, and this is, I don't know if you know Cecil, who used to be at We Act, but he just passed away this year. But he, um, many activists are dying because they cannot, they cannot, they themselves can't afford health insurance. So they themselves just can't afford, they're stressed out. They're, they're trying to do a thousand, they can't even hire a person to like, just to just like help with the books or payroll and they're getting so it's it's just terrible, and they're they're weighing this as well as being sometimes a partner, or well as being a mother, or well as being somebody who's in a vulnerable community. So let's just get to some brass tacks. Um, this is actually for all of you. This is for you, uh, Kate, Laura, and Solomon. Uh, this is this little this little tough one here. This is 
So, but I know y'all already going to dive into it. Y'all, y'all showing that. So, you know, uh, let's just keep it 100. Uh, you know, some communities, you know, can write an idea down on a napkin. Um, and they can get funded. Uh, and while uh, black and brown and indigenous and people of color communities write a dissertation <laughs> to over-explain themselves and still do not receive funding, if they do receive that funding, it's much lower than what they asked for. And in many cases, they have to scale back uh, their quote, radical um, and making as reasonable approaches because they know the funders are predominantly white. That is not about equity, right? And that's not about fairness. So Kate, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts about that? And I, would, I want Soleimane and, and Laura, please, I want everybody to kind of chime into that one. Yes, that is the question of our time. And uh, I think it's... Um, it's the one that we tackle head on through our own strategies. We were talking about this recently, like how do we ensure that BIPOC-led work is resourced? And someone said to me, by resourcing it, right? Like we just move the say money. That say that again for the people in the back of the room here. <laughs> <laughs> how do we make sure it's resourced? By resourcing it, right? Like, uh, it, again, like moving from the head to the heart, like, it, or like from the heart to the hands, like it's about action, like just do it. It is not an intellectual exercise or it doesn't have to be an intellectual exercise. Um, that said, there are ways that, you know, you can create the, the guardrails that ensure that that happens institutionally, right? It can be um, by building it into grant criteria, by articulating it as a strategic priority. And then most importantly, reporting on the results reporting on the numbers so that as a grant maker, as a funder, you're accountable to that public commitment that you've made to resource uh, work led by people of color. Um, to give generously, to give quickly, to amplify success. These are all the kinds of things that as funders, we commit to doing um, as part of our commitment to equity. Um, the other thing is to make sure that the people responsible for the funding decisions are people of color, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Urgent Action Fund's case, uh, all of our uh, staff who are making the funding decisions are women of color. And mm -hmm. that's not an accident. You know, I think in traditional philanthropy, there has been this barrier, this distance between the grant maker and the recipient, the grantee, the grantee partner. And it's a, it's a barrier that just has to, like it has to come down in order for the grants to be effective. The, the connection between funder and community has to be seamless. Many of all of our staffs, boards, all of our advisors um, have been recipients of the funding from our organizations in the past. Right. That's how that's how they came to know about Urgent Action Fund or Thousand Currents or whoever, because they themselves as activists received funding and saw how critical, critical and valuable this funding was to them being able to achieve their objectives. So then they moved to the other side of the equation because they knew that by having the experience of the activist, they were attentive to 
the power dynamics between funder and activist, between the barriers that activists generally face to uh, to receiving effective funds and receiving them quickly. So then by becoming the funder themselves, you know, they breach that barrier and they make that connection seamless. So, um, yeah, I think those are all the tools we have to, to make sure that our resources are going where they should go in pursuit of equity. Powerful. Salome? That's something. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Laura. Thank you. Well, some, I, I completely agree with Kate that, you know, you just need to do it, right? Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to add something there because sometimes funders just, um, we have bias and we have unconscious bias and we have other ways where we don't see beyond our privilege. So I have seen in my career some funders um, say, well, we did open a call for proposals, but the grassroots communities didn't arrive. And of course, you need to do an outreach. Of course, you need to do an intentional just getting the money out there. Because getting the money out there to the first people that you see are going to be the big organizations, the rich organizations, the most prepared to do the long formats that you're, you know, you're thinking that it's going to be easy to do them. But in order to really reach these communities, you need to do a very intentionally and well thought out outreach. You need to put your formats in different languages. You need to not assume that everybody has a computer. You need to not assume that everybody is knows who you are. So Global Green Grants Fund, for example, uh, likewise with, uh, with my sister organizations, we all are placed and based in the US, but we do global work. And the fact that we do global work makes us be very thoughtful of the systems and the working model that we have in place to be able to reach those organizations that are outside the radar of traditional philanthropy. But those models are extremely important because they are the gates to people who are not usually close to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, they are the, they are, there are important doors that you need to consciously open. And this is the same for everything else, right? In the racial justice movement as well. Many companies say, well, we open a call for proposals, but only men arrived. Well, yes, of course, because that's what you have been doing so many years that men are the one that knows your company. But you need to think of ways in which you get to grassroots organizations that start knowing you. And for that to happen, you need to build working models, like for example, the um, Global Green Grants uh, Fund has more than 200 regional and local environmental activists working as advisors who are in the ground working alongside the grantees that we are supporting. So they are helping us reach out to them. Uh, this is something that I, I wanted to say as an example because I think it works well with what Kate said. You just need to give the money, but you need to understand that where you are standing right now is not necessarily seen by many grassroots movements and they will not arrive to your door. You need to arrive to theirs. Hmm. Sorry, yeah, I fully agree with my colleagues. I think I will only add that, you know, the, the external work we do in funding movements and groups 
um, is only going to be effective if we're also doing our internal work as organizations. Mm-hmm. And Kate started, you know, touched on that as well. And that internal work means doing our anti-racism work, decolonizing our organizations, our practices and approaches and, and ideologies and so on. And it also means really taking a difficult look at ourselves to see does our board, our leadership team, our staff reflect the areas and the places where we work, because it's often when there isn't a connection, as Kate was saying, that we have funding problems where, where we actually end up not funding BIPOC communities. So I think, you know, I would echo one is we have to do our own internal work. We cannot be effective without it. And that internal work is not just intellectual. It's not just mind work. It's also heart work, right? So which is why I appreciate, Rev, that you started us with the heart, not just the mind in, in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think secondly, in addition to that, I would say, while you're doing that work, <laughs> um, it's important to think about what are the ways in which we can make our processes uh, less burdensome, right? As Laura was also saying. And to do so, I think there's also a need for us, particularly in philanthropy, to redefine our understanding of accountability. Because philanthropy is actually largely unaccountable if we actually are honest with ourselves, right? It it exists in a space of kind of lack of accountability. So I think it's important for us, at least for a thousand currents, the way I see it is that we're actually accountable to the movements, to our partners and the places where they work, right? And if that's the case, then we can actually think about how do we enact that accountability with them, right? What, what practices do we actually utilize to make sure that we are accountable? That also means listening to them, getting their feedback and changing ourselves. And it's that process that allows us to be in right relationship with them, right? And, and thirdly, I would, only, I would also just add that often um, the reason that funders, well, actually, I'll name it, I'll be honest. The reason yeah. why some can, can write their ideas on a napkin and others have to do a dissertation, it's racism. And there's racism in philanthropy, right? That, we have to name that. There's a reason why less than 5% of funding for communities of color in the United States goes to groups led by people of color. That's unacceptable. And internationally, that number is even more dismal. I won't even get into that here. And so, so I think, I think um, part of the work that we have to do is we have to do our work to, make sh- to, to really change this figure, this number. And if we don't know how to do that now, that's why institutions and infrastructures like the Klima Fund exist. We have the relationships with frontline communities and groups. We're able actually to take on the burden, right? We will do the reporting with the funder. We will take on the responsibility and then unrestrict the money and give core flexible support to our movements so that they can do what they need to do to move the work forward. So I would say one way and part of the way in which we can do that as a strategy is use grassroots intermediaries that have the politic, the principle, and the practice to do this right. Mm, no, that's very powerful. And I think I just wanted to say to people who are listening that this can be done and, and this is not impossible, even for the web caucus, you know, even me personally, the re- reason why we're having this, I'm having this dynamic conversation with, with folks from FEMA and these, these CEOs and EDs um, from these funds right now is because, um, you know, at the web caucus, we we transitioned in our, and I had asked that I was around and I stepped down. And then we, we brought on a feminist millennial woman to lead the Hip Hop Caucus. And I love it. 
That's the nigga could ever happen to the organization and to our work. This for a lot of different reasons. I think that there's just a different lens that we need to see things. And I think, and so, but I will I always say that we groups, BIPOC and and groups do that easier. We 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 change up easier. And I think it's sometimes it's those larger, you know predominantly white groups, they don't. And it's a big deal for them to change up. So I actually want to hop to something about that because I think that kind of goes into the resources. And I want to just start with this one for UK. This is kind of uh, on the news recently. We've been hearing about the Jeff Bezos kind of <laughs> resources and, and around that. So I guess what are your thoughts on, on the Jeff Bezos and other wealthy contributions to climate um, in regards to getting that those resources to BIPOC organizations? Uh, yeah, uh, that it's very much in the news. I think it's something that we're all thinking about right now. Um, I think, uh, you know, as I said earlier in this conversation, philanthropy functions within a fundamentally unequal system, right? So as inequality is increasing, which we know it's increasing, um, that means that the amounts that those who have wealth have to give away is also increasing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a terrible sign because we know that it is um, a symptom of the inequality, but it also means that there's an opportunity there, that there is an opportunity for far more resources than ever. We were just talking about how profoundly under-resourced these grassroots groups are. So there is also an opportunity for us to make sure that those resources are directed to the communities that we've been having this conversation about. It also shows to me that like philanthropy has arrived, that philanthropy is not a pet project anymore. It's not a sideshow. It is one of the key levers for change. Um, And it's an invitation. It's an invitation for other people who see themselves as Jeff Bezos's peer uh, to move into the space, right? To start channeling their own resources in, in that direction. Um, but when all of that happens, there has to be that accountability that we were talking about before for that money to get to frontline communities. Um, otherwise, it's just not going to be effective. Like it's just, it's not going to, it's not going to produce the change that Jeff Bezos now says that he wants in the world, that we are all saying we want in the world. It actually has to get to those communities. So the money exists, the pot is growing in philanthropy, um, but it needs to be directed. And um, yeah, that's what we're here to do. We're here to direct it to the right places. I guess, so let me follow on that one, on that one Kate, and that one, thing with this, and then also Solomon and Laura, please jump in here. Um, I guess, so I'm on the board of Green 2.0, and Green 2.0 looks at how many people of color are working for large, predominantly, you know, uh, climate organizations. I'm also work very closely with Green Leisure Trust, because I'm on the board of a lot of, I'm on the board of some of these large, I'm on the board of, I'm on the board of legal conservation voters and da 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 And so I get, it's that many of us on that and on those different spaces. <laughs> but we always, we never end up is that we talk about all the time about 
getting resources and money to the exact entities you're funding. Aren't you a little frustrated? Because it seemed like what would have happened if Jeff Bezos would have taken that first billion or 700 million and would have given it to, and would have given it to, I would have loved to give it to Klima. And then y'all would have then broke it off for all of the folks. How radical, how powerful would that have been? I mean, no offense to the groups who got the money. Love them all. Fantastic. God bless you. But I'm just saying, what would have been, <laughs> what would have been if, and I see all y'all have put your hands on your chins on that one too. And what would have happened if they would have, if Jeff Bezos would have given y'all the money? And then y'all could have done how radical, how, how at this moment in the movement, how important would that have been? I think, Rev, that this question is not only for the money arriving today, but for the amounts of money that is coming for climate movement in the next 10 years. There's going to be more and more big time money as climate becomes more and more of a reality in privileged countries. It already is very much a reality and a problem, but not, unfortunately not in the spaces where people with money can adapt better and can, you know, like get away from those uh, places where there's been, you know, enormous fires and droughts and, and rising sea levels. But this money is going to be coming in big chunks and big funds that are not trained and that have not learned what philanthropy has slowly but surely, some parts of it at least, the progressive philanthropy been learning over the years. The power to really st step back and let the grassroots movement lead the way. Uh, the, the Taking our focus away from this um, scalability and ideas of become, having more and more impact and and not giving a chance to grassroots organizations to thrive. So there's a lot of building that we need to do in the field of philanthropy and options like intermediaries, like Solomon said, where intermediaries have been able to, um, to, to understand the system and the difficulties and to address giving and resourcing grassroots movements in the best way possible. So, my sense and my, my dream is for us as in Clima to also continue influencing the field of philanthropy for this big money to make a much more or much better difference than what it is already making. So I would encourage us to continue thinking that we have always dealt uh, in philanthropy and I, I know that my, my colleagues here too, with new funders that arrive with uh, great intentions, but bad ideas. <laughs> and <laughs> we don't like kicking them out. On the quite the contrary, I think that there's we are all in a formative process. And I'm not saying that we have the solution because philanthropy, like every other system, is constantly evolving, and we're constantly being questioned and holding to accountability to make our systems better. But let's at least give the benefit of the doubt of those of us who have been here longer so that we can tell to Jeff Bezos and we can tell to all the other, you know, rich individuals with like really good intentions that, you know, they are, their idea is not really going to work as well <laughs> and that perhaps there's a way, a better way of doing it so that we really put money in the most impactful and everlasting way. There's also this tendency 
And we have seen it, for example, with the Black Lives Matter movement this year, when because it is now suddenly seen and exploding, everybody's putting money there. But let's think about what's going to happen next year and the year after in really resourcing the racial justice movement when it's latent, when there's no, where it's not necessarily in the news, you know, because long lasting change needs continuous philanthropic support. We cannot just arrive to get our picture taken to resource those um, organizations that suddenly became famous in CNN and then forget about it. We need to continuously give money towards the grassroots movements, even when our money will not be recognized in the media because that movement is still in, in the process of forming and becoming one day something which we will hope everybody will see. But we need to continuously form and educate new funders arriving because it's not, it's not that we want to kick that money out. We want more money. We need more money, all of us in the movements. We just need it to be well-placed because money can be very disruptive and even counter, uh, counter um, how do you say that? Like have negative consequences if you don't do it well. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, well, I, I see, I see Selena and Kate biting the bit here. Get in. I agree with you. Everything you said is exactly it. I guess I'm just wondering that how do we get, and I'm, I'm now advocating because I, I love Plima, so I'm not advocating for Plima. And so I just think that, so I think that what I'm saying is that I think that the funds, and let me be very clear, um, uh, I think the, um, the, 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 the Climate and Clean Energy, Climate and Clean Energy Fund, uh, my dear friend Roger Kim, they got some money. And they, that's great. I love, I love them. I think that they, they should because I think that they are in that position. I'm now, because I'm kind of an OG, I've been around to see all the folks within um, this side of the world and climate funding in particular. So I just feel that entities like you and Klima need to be the ones who get these resources and or it needs to go right to the, the, the groups on the ground. And I just think that we, I think that, for instance, the groups who are getting the money need to be, who are, who already have budgets of a hundred million need to be like, thank you. This would be wonderful, but this money would be better served if it went to this, you know, see what I'm saying, Laura? I think that's, and so I guess, uh, well, well, Selena and Kate, I mean, hop in there. Am I, am I wrong for thinking this way? Yeah, no, no, you're not at all. You're absolutely right. We we also wish to that many came to Klima Fund, so so we're right there with you um, for for sure. And you know, I think it's interesting because of that 750 million or so that he gave, um, about 150 went to equity groups, right? Like like Klima Fund, the Hive Fund, and the Solutions Project, and then. Um, I, I'm forgetting the name of the third organization, <laughs> but but three of them were um, are groups that are trying to move resources to the grassroots. Um, but you know, it seems uh, so. That's promising, right? And what we want is we want more of these donors to actually move in that direction and move more of their money in that direction, um, particularly because, as we said earlier, 
within institutional philanthropy, only less than 1% is allocated for climate, right? And then within that, even less is allocated for grassroots groups and movements. And so part of it is just like an effectiveness argument, right? We've tried the old strategy. We've gone with big organizations, big impacts. We're still here. We're still dealing with the climate crisis. So let's try something new. Um, and so to Jeff Bezos, who hopefully is listening to this and any other rich person that is listening to this podcast, it's if you want to be effective, be effective, be innovative, be radical, move money in the direction of where there is a wide gap, right? And, and we're here, we're able to absorb it and we're able to redistribute that, the, the, the funds to exactly where they need to go to the grassroots, to movements led by Black, Indigenous and people of color. So it is, we absolutely agree with you. Um, and that's why we exist because we've seen that gap, right? And, and, and that's what we're working to do. And, and ch that change is taking time and we're seeing some progress that is leading us to believe that, that we can actually get there. And I really appreciate you also saying, first of all, fund the movement, right? And yeah. then fund, <laughs> let's, there's this idea and assumption that grassroots groups and movements, one, operate at a small level and can only take small amounts of capital or that they're not able to absorb the funds, right? And that's an assumption that, that we listen, need to interrogate. You're going to force us to have a part two to this because, listen, <laughs> don't rock we don't, I, mean, we, I know this time went so fast, but I, I need you to really just slow down right there. I just really need you because there is this misconception yeah. that, and maybe that folks who come to funders and their budget is say 500,000 and they're, they're, they're darn near killing themselves to do so. And then they may be breaking off other people out the 500. They actually are, they're funding other entities out of that little bit of money sometimes. And they're doing so much work. And then funders would tell that group you can't handle the money. And that's just like one of the most deflated yeah. things. And they'll tell this, this young sister and she'll be like, man, what are you talking about? So I need you to really just break that exactly. down. Exactly. No, that's precisely it, right? And we've seen that again and again and again. And I'm going to keep saying it because we're having an honest conversation that there's also just a racist assumption behind that around who we think can absorb the funds and who we trust to be able to absorb the funds and who we think is worthy of risk in the sector. We can spend a hundred million dollar in an organization led by someone that looks like us that we think is trustworthy, but we don't trust black indigenous and, and people of color, right? And so that is a flawed assumption that is hurting us as donors and philanthropists. And that is undermining our effectiveness um, because the big organization that has the $25 million budget that you're funding and think you think manages money well, <laughs> uh, didn't get there without funding, right? They didn't start out at $25 million. They didn't start out there. It's because somebody believed in them. Somebody invested in them. And that's what we need to do for our movements. That's what we need to do for grassroots groups. Really, in the words of Ashley Henderson from Movement for Black Lives, it's like, fund us like we want, you want us to win, right? Let's fund yeah. our movements like we want them to win. And that's actually something the right does really well, right? They give large amounts of capital that is unrestricted. They fund conditions and not products or results. They fund processes, and that's why they're winning. But we don't do a good job of doing so when, when it comes to progressive climate justice philanthropy and funding. So really for donors that, that 
that are saying they want to support climate justice and they want to see transformative change, the solutions are there. It's just that we're not moving the money. Hmm. And y'all, y'all, y'all saying something here. This is this is all. This is this is good stuff. Uh, man. So let me just give y'all the last word. I'm gonna do a round robin. It's, it really is. I'm gonna let folks know. I had so many more things to add in, but this time went so fast. So we really are gonna to need to do a, a Klima part two. We're gonna to have to do that. Uh, I, I want this last question to kind of speak to that though. I want. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go, Kate. Here. I want to kind of go from head. We've been going head for a little bit now. I'm going back to heart for a little bit here. This last, this last bit. Um, but I just want to let people know that I'm so thankful for our guests today, who are members of the leadership committee of the Klima Fund. Kate Kruger is the director of Urgent Action Fund. Laura Garcia is the president and CEO of Global Green Grants, Green Grants Fund. And Salimit Lima is the executive director of Thousand Currents. And so, but I want y'all to come in here. So, um, Salima, Kate, Laura, um, this is the last part. You know, and Salima kind of hit on it a little bit. Fund us like you want us to win, right? That's that's real, that's real. Um, so I want to start with you, Laura, and walk, walk my way around to then to Kate and then Salima bring us home. Um, with what you've seen now, because now you are in a, an amazing position. You have the ability um, to fund things that are going to help us to survive, to live. You're going to be able to fund, like Kate, trans people and feminists, and women and young people, and people of color throughout this country and the globe who are going to rise up and need those resources. And I guess it's a simple question, but you know the machine on the other side, like, you know what I mean? You also know, you know, you, you, you're around your colleagues and you're like, you get to see like, mm, some, some of these folks on this side ain't, you know, woo, they need some help. <laughs> and so knowing all the things you know now, the question is very simple. Are you hopeful? Um, I am incredibly hopeful. I just came from doing a five-day trek in Mexico uh, from community to community that have um, built uh, regenerative economies and agroecological projects. And I just saw in a very small scale, if you will, true transformation of the great systems that we very occasionally stop being hopeful for, uh, mm -hmm. such as the economy and inequality. I saw communities begin to thrive after consciously getting reorganized from 10 years back to now in building better systems to plant and to grow coffee and to stop migrating to the US. These are communities where youth are beginning to understand the power of the connection with earth and the ability to produce food in the middle of a pandemic, as opposed to other communities close by that are facing grave problems right now because they haven't been able to do that. If I can see that in a very small scale, 
why not dream that this is going to be possible in every other in every other community in the world so i have seen I have seen that very recently and I continuously see that in our grantee stories. And I would just say that maybe what's needed to continuously um, uh, be hopeful is for everybody to connect with this work with their hearts. We can bring arguments with our heads. Uh, we hope we did that today. But if we don't connect with our hearts to projects that are very close by to us, to neighbors that are organizing against an injustice in our neighborhood, to projects that are, you know, close to our hearts and close to our lives. If we don't see that, if we lose hope, then we lose everything. So I am not only hopeful, but I am inviting others to be hopeful by looking at these projects and these stories of change because there's heroines and heroes every day. It doesn't matter if it's 2020 and we feel like the, the world has been, you know, ever uh, in, in trouble. Um, I, I am hopeful. Mm. That was Laura Garcia, the president and CEO of Global Green Grants Fund. Uh, Kate, are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful um, because we had this conversation and uh, because conversations like this are happening all over now. Um, and that, uh, that in these conversations, all of us are learning and growing and changing. I, um, these past few years have been incredibly painful for this country. And for the world, this, these few years have been um, years of reckoning and reckoning with patriarchy, with white supremacy and racism, with the impacts of colonialism. And what has carried us through or what has led the reckoning has been movements. And, um, and we, are, we continue to be in a movement moment. I mean, the, the victories that we had, the political victories that we had uh, recently in the United States have come about because of years and years and years of struggle and of movement work. And, um, and those victories give me hope for what's to come. I feel like we've kind of, we've really gone into the darkness. We've seen who we are and there has been learning and organizing and transformation and um, we are about to be free. I feel it. We're about to be free. Mm. That is Kay Kruger, the executive director of the Urgent Action Fund. Solomay, are you hopeful? Yes, absolutely hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful because of what I get to witness every day through the work of our grassroots partners who are who are building new possibilities um, right here, right now, today. I could get into them, but I know we don't have much time. So I would ask your audience to, to visit the Klima Fund website at klimasolutions.org to really learn about all the ways in which, which movements are actually building the world that we want. It's here. So that gives me hope. I'm hopeful, as Kate was saying, because of the kinds of conversations we're able to have today that we weren't even having nine months ago. In the last nine months, because of the pandemic and because of 
the racial justice movement, we have people talking about universal basic income in ways they weren't talking about before. People are talking about anti-blackness in ways they weren't talking about for the past few decades and so on. And it gives me hope that when we center our movements, when we stand with and behind our movements, we can actually get free, as Kate was saying. Um, lastly, your question reminded me of um, a question that someone asked one of our grantee partners that we had brought to the United States, an indigenous feminist activist. And, and they asked her the same question, are you hopeful and why? And she said, absolutely. We've been doing this for 500 years. It is hope that has allowed us not only to survive, but to really thrive and build joy and liberation in our communities. And that hope is a discipline. So I am attaching myself firmly to it, even when it's hard and even when it's, it seems impossible. Mm. And that is Salome Lima, Executive Director of Thousand Currents. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. And our guests today have been the members of the Leadership Committee of the Klima Fund. Thank you all so much. And we definitely have to get a part two to this story. Thank you. Already. Thank you so much for having us. What a great conversation. you heard on this episode make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform follow us at think 100 climate and at hip-hop caucus on instagram twitter and facebook visit the where you can take action for climate justice right now you can also learn more about this podcast and donate to think 100 percent which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.